0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Really excited to have you with us today as we have another great guest on the podcast. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. First of all, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. We greatly appreciate you. You giving us some time, and hopefully, we can repay you with a great conversation today. If you feel moved or inspired or enjoy this conversation, we'd love for you to go over to patreoncom intentional performers. Once again, that's patreoncom intentional performers. And over there, you can give as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month to help us continue to keep this. Thing rolling. So thanks to everybody who has already subscribed and written a review on iTunes or shared these conversations with a friend. Uh, please continue to do so, and we're very grateful to have you as part of our community. Now to today's guest. Miranda Holder is somebody who I got introduced to because she is part of the executive coaching world, and she went to the same program that I went to at Georgetown University, and she has a background in sports. So we're going to get into her journey that involved rowing. So she was a three-sport athlete in high school and then she found rowing in college and she competed at an elite high level when it comes to rowing. She then became a rowing coach, which she's gonna share with you today, and ended up being a coach at Georgetown University for rowing uh, for a number of years. And that journey led to her ending up becoming an executive coach. And today she spends a lot of time working with people in all walks of life in the corporate space, but she considers herself to be an insight wizard. And she's going to give insight into how she came to develop her eye for coaching both rowers, and people in the corporate world. So she uses her observations and intuition to hold up a mirror to individuals, and she helps them see themselves and their situations more clearly. For the people who are brave enough to do the work, there's an incredible person, leader, and idea of innovation ready to surface. And she tries to unpack and help them figure out exactly how those people can show up. So she loves to work with people on authentically being the best leader or the best CEO that they can be, while also taking risks to maybe start a company or refusing to settle into a career path that doesn't elicit joy and excitement. So she loves helping people unlock their potential. And at her core, she loves coaching. She loves helping people on their journey and their path. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Miranda. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Miranda Holder. Miranda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Just some background before we get started on on how we got connected. Uh, I met somebody at a uh, conference slash training seminar, and that person told me, oh, there's this husband and wife that both were Division I coaches, both went through the Georgetown Executive Coaching Program, and you should connect with them. So after connecting with your husband, he told me about you, and And he sounds like an amazing guy and we had an amazing conversation, but I was like, man, I'd really like to talk to your wife. And so we chatted. Um, From my perspective, we hit it off. I don't know what your perspective is on that, but I am so geeked and excited to chat today with you and, and to learn from you because it's not every day that I find people that interact at the intersection that I'm interested in or have experience in sport at the level that you've had um, and also are passionate about coaching uh, in the corporate world. So this is going to be fun. I don't know where we're going to go. And those are often my favorite conversations. So where I'd love to start is to find out about your rowing and when rowing first came into your life, how it came into your life. So if you could start there and paint that picture, uh, I'd love to hear about your experience in rowing.
1: Love to start there. So, um, (laughs) I played three sports in high school uh, basketball, soccer, and I ran track um, in the springtime. And uh, I was, in in my narrative of myself, I was not particularly good at any of those. Um, I was really strong and I was fast and I could outwork, I think, a lot of people, Uh, but I wasn't necessarily. highly skilled as they say and so I knew that playing that sport at the collegiate level or any of those sports a it wasn't my passion and b it was unlikely that it was going to happen um my dad had actually rowed he was a member of union boat club in Boston and had spent summers like fixing shells and stuff um which for the layman out there are it's another word for boat um and so I figured that I heard about rowing and I heard you just had to be tough and strong and I was like well I'm I'm those things I'm tough and strong I'm not really much else but, but I can do that Um, and so I walked on to my college team and it's just, I mean, I remember seeing it on the Charles river when I was driving through Boston, one of the first times I was there and I mean, it just took my breath away. It was the only thing I've up until that point, it was the only thing I fell in love with at first sight. I just thought it was the coolest, most beautiful, amazing thing. And, and I was good at it right away and I hadn't been really good at other sports. And so it really, and it seemed simple and easy and that it was just about, it was about burying yourself. Like it was about putting yourself in the hurt locker. And I was really good at that. So rowing and I really hit it off right from the very beginning.
0: But with dad's background and being in a city like Boston that has a rowing history, why didn't you do it earlier?
1: I didn't know it was available earlier. Um, Like totally honest. Like I don't, I don't even think there was rowing in the par- So I grew up in Connecticut, and now that area of Connecticut, Fairfield County, is like exploding. It has exploded with rowing. There was one year at the um, National Championships for Juniors where I'm pretty sure almost every event was won by a club in Connecticut. Um, so it's exploded there. I don't think it was going on there in quite the same way when I was coming along, and I just didn't know about it. It was also, uh, you know, that was um, late 90s. And and rowing was just kind of becoming a thing in terms of Title IX. It was being seen as a way to balance out football in terms of overall expenditure. So uh, there was actually an article in the New York Times that kind of got my attention in high school that it was talking about um, women being given scholarships straight out of high school who hadn't ever picked up an oar before. But they were good enough athletes that they were being given scholarships to, to row in college. And so I was like, hey, okay, this is, this is kind of a thing. I could do this. And of course, I wasn't going to a place with scholarships, but um, you know, it was really interesting to me.
0: And what else about your childhood is relevant? So three-sport athlete, siblings, what, what did mom and dad do? Just paint that picture for us a little bit.
1: Yeah, my mom uh, was at home with us, and my dad was a self-employed management consultant. Um, so I actually got—I think—I think there's a lot of overlap and similarity to what my dad uh, did and what I do now. And I think he was actually doing a lot of coaching in his practice himself. Um, but they were—they were calling it that, but it was obviously different than what what's going on now in the executive coaching world. But um, had two siblings, and I was actually a really in my in my telling of my story, I was a really uncoordinated kid um like pick blast for kickball felt really awkward all the time in gym class like didn't really feel like a great athlete so the irony is not lost on me that I decided to go and like I feel like sometime in middle school I was just like you know whatever I'm gonna figure this out Like, I'm just I'm gonna do this I'm gonna stop being bad at sports um and I just sort of put my nose down and went for better or for worse.
0: What about you or, or what about the values that your parents instilled in you allowed you to take that leap? A lot of other people would just be like, I'm bad at this. I'm going to go as far away from it as possible. Is there anything that you can pull on or any threads that allowed you, I'm thinking of the word grit to to keep going and moving, moving toward where you wanted to go?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I had kind of an old-fashioned upbringing in the sense that, you know, are like that was right around the time that computers were coming into homes, um, and we had a really small TV. Like, pe- my friends didn't believe we had a TV because they were like, "No, you don't have a TV in your house." And I was like, "No, I do." And they're like, "No, you don't. We haven't seen it." And I was like, "That's because it's like you know, it's like two inches big and it's in the corner of our living room, under some books." So you know, I was my screen time was really limited. Uh, I had a lot of chores to do. I was I was outside barefoot you know, most of the year. (laughs) So I don't know, I just, I feel like the kind of experience that my parents provided for me in terms of having me be outside, having me be active, having me be an important part of the family and working hard, you know, uh, I think that was a lot of it, you know, they were just taught to work hard and not give up, but like, you know, especially not to quit. Like I remember trying to quit stuff when I was younger and my mom was like, nope, (laughs) you know, you're not going to quit this. Like you finish what you start. So I don't know. I knew on some level. I also knew that being an athlete was it um, was part of what I enjoyed. I liked being physical. I liked sweating. I liked competing. Um, I knew that that was an important part of who I was, and so I knew I wanted to continue in college. So to me, rowing was just a way to keep doing the thing that I knew was good for me. I knew. I think I knew on some level, subconsciously, it would keep me out of trouble too. Um, and so I just and I liked being on a team. Um, so I wanted to keep going.
0: And working hard, and you mentioned the TV was under books. Were, were academics stressed in the house? Uh, were they talked about? And and talk about where you went to college and and also that experience.
1: Yeah. Um, yes. Books were stressed. Uh, we didn't. So I didn't grow up watching sports on TV. Like I'm not really attached to the classic American pastimes of football and baseball because we just we were reading Shakespeare, <laughs> like, and not because we were like, that was just what was going on in our house. And both my parents were English majors and um, we were all readers. Like we had rules against like reading, like we, there was so much reading going on. We had to limit the reading. <laughs> um, so it's just a different kind of experience, you know, growing up. Um, and so I feel like that was a lot of what influenced that really shaped my world, you know, was was words and writing and reading, and, um, and it wasn't really about, you know, sports per se. So it's interesting that I went in that direction. Um, but even even down to my name, like both of my names come from from books, from works of literature. So you know, that's how nerdy it was in the in the Paris household growing up.
0: And I'm sure it served you in high school from an academic standpoint. Uh, did you thrive in academics in high school? Uh, what, what was that like for you?
1: <laughs> no, um, well, it depends on how you define thrive. <laughs> um, but I, I did sort of just enough to get you know, like A minuses, A's, B pluses, sort of whatever I could kind of skate through. By it drove my mom crazy. She, she was like, I had to work really hard to get the grades that you're getting. You don't seem to be working that hard. <laughs> um, you know, to me, academics were important. And I had some really amazing teachers who engaged me. I went to a really amazing school um, that I didn't really value until I left. Um, got a really fantastic education. Um, but, you know, I I didn't really work hard. I didn't want to be, I saw people that were worrying about high school and worried about where they went to college. And I didn't really want to do that. Like I just sort of figured in my 14-year-old, 16-year-old brain, I was like, eh, it's going to work out. Like, it's going to work out however it's going to work out. And if I have to twist myself into a pretzel and work, you know, 100 hours a week on my homework and do all this SAT prep, you know, like, I just don't want to have that kind of experience. Like, I didn't take a bunch of AP class. This is, like, kind of right before all that stuff became a thing. Like, I'm probably the only person who escaped in that year who didn't take, like, AP calculus or whatever. Like, I didn't even take pre-calc. I just was like, nope. I'm just going. So it was kind of, it was not a, not an impressive uh, high school academic career by any stretch.
0: So I'm hearing though, but you're pretty gifted uh, as far as your ability to read and write. You didn't have to try too hard and you still did pretty well. Maybe not thrive, but you were able to put some grades together that were solid. The other thing that I hear from you that I remember when we first talked you have this way about you that's very much if it's meant to be it'll be like it, if it's meant to happen it'll it'll come in where does that mindset or that approach stem from come from for you what's it rooted in
1: That's a great question Um I think it probably comes from So when I was a really little kid, like I'm talking like two, three, four, I remember having this experience of being out in the woods. I climbed trees a lot. Um, and I remember looking around and I, I grew up as a side note. I grew up in a very, um, spiritual slash religious family was raised as a, a born again Christian. And so that was, so faith was sort of a huge part of, of how I was raised and, and, uh, outside of that whole sort of classic church experience I remember being in the woods and sort of looking around and being like there is something here like I am not alone here like there there's clearly something sort of bigger more powerful than I am at the time I probably you know if I had the words for it I would have called it magic um you know it just it just felt like something bigger than me for lack of a better phrase and So I don't know. I sort of feel like it's how I came into the world. It's, it's sort of in, in my personality. Um, You know, it's so hard to suss these things out. Like, where do they come in? How do they get formed? You know, do you come with them or do they get built in in some way? Um, But I guess it's, it's the most sort of logical answer is that it was built in through, you know, sort of a, a religious upbringing, you know, that like, there's a, there's a God, you know, he's got a plan for you stuff will happen the way it's supposed to happen. And I I don't, um, you know, I, I maybe don't look at it through that same lens anymore. And I still feel like I've carried that perspective and mindset forward.
0: What is your spiritual lens today?
1: Uh, my spiritual lens is that, you know, the, the God that I was raised with is bigger and more unknowable than any of the religions in the world of sort of been able to, to figure out or category. Like To me, a lot of the religions um, that I got exposed to and was raised with make things smaller. So it's not that I don't believe in God anymore. I absolutely do. I believe that there's something bigger than all of us and uh, that we're not alone. Um, and I don't know that there's any one religion or faith that has particularly you know, nailed it. I think that faith and religion are a creation of human beings. So it's pretty, it's pretty hard to put a box around you know, if you're the if you're the created being, like how do you then capture the the essence of the creator, so to speak? Um, so, sorry, that was a terrible answer and that is highly non-specific. But um, I don't know if that answers your question at all.
0: It absolutely does, and it, it actually is very logical. Um, so I I don't think it was a terrible answer at all. Um, okay, so back to your story. You're walking on in college. Where'd you go to college? And talk to me about, all right, so now you're a walk-on. You're picking up an oar. Did I say it right? It's called an oar. Yeah, Mm -hmm. good. Uh, I have a funny story that I'll just interject here is uh, Miranda and I, I think, spoke about this last time. Uh, I work with George Washington University's athletic department. And the first time I go to speak to their women's rowing team, um, I'm at the front of the room and I start uh, motioning like a paddle with my left arm and my with my left arm to my left side with my left arm and my right arm on top of each other, just like fists on top of each other. And I'm on the left, and then I bring it over to the right, and I'm like, "Oh, you paddle like this. <laughs> you paddle like this." Um, and uh, I guess like a canoe, like that's what I was paddling. And they start giggling, and you know, college girls giggle. It's it's not the end of the world. Like I I've I've been giggled at before or laughed at. And I say it again the second time. And then, thank God, one of the girls in the front row just signaled with her hands in front of her and just pulling back like a row. And I got it. I go, oh crap, I've been paddling instead of rowing. Um, So I've come a decent ways with my rowing experience, having worked with a lot of the athletes there, but I'm still a work in progress. So uh, you pick up an oar. And you're, you go into a shell. Yes. And, uh, like what's it like for you as you get started with this activity? I'm sure there were other people there that did have experience. Just talk about what it was like to be a novice at an elite level and, uh, your, your rowing experience.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, my, my experience was, um, it was just, I don't know, it was just pretty magical to me right, right away. Like you get in this, I learned in like a 20 year old men's heavyweight shell, which basically is sort of like, um, what's the equivalent here? It's like, if you put on a, a pair of skis or you try to pick up a surfboard or a snowboard that was horribly missized for you, like it's it just makes the whole thing much more difficult. Um, but, you know, being out on the water is such a magical experience and seeing the land uh, from a, from the position of the water is so different and and being surrounded by all the noises and the experiences of being out in the water early in the morning in Boston. I mean, like I got up at, my alarm went off at 440, you know, all four years of college and people just thought I was like a whack job, you know, like they were like, what is your problem? (laughs) Like, that is terrible. And I was like, you know, the first 10 seconds after my alarm goes off is terrible, but then it's just like, I am, so pumped to be out of bed and to be out there because and you're out there with like your very best friends you know doing this incredible workout that you didn't think you could do and you like leave feeling like such a badass like I don't know what's better like you stay up until like 4 a.m. getting like you know blackout drunk like I think I'm making better life decisions than you are (laughs) um you know it was it was just it was awesome um right from the get-go and I was just hardcore addicted from the start
0: yeah the other part that you didn't mention, so you went to Wesleyan correct
1: I went to Wellesley Wellesley why why did I say Wesleyan because we actually had a t shirt um because <laughs> everybody <laughs> makes that mistake. it's okay where the t-shirt was like not not a co-ed liberal arts college in Connecticut. it's a women's college uh, outside Boston
0: yeah, I was gonna say, but Wellesley's in Boston, and mm-hmm. so it's not like you're in miami um or you know Los Angeles where it's 70 degrees out at 440 in the morning. Um, So, but, but you're, you're, there's something in you that was willing to go toward the tough and go toward this challenge. Cause, okay, like I hear you. Like there's a part of me inside that says, yes, like when I wake up early uh, and I'm productive, like it does pay dividends. And I know for a fact, 20 year old me, there's zero chance of me. I would have looked at you like one of those other college kids, 100%. And honestly, like the version of me now is I I still am trying to figure out like what's the sweet spot for me as far as waking up and being productive in the morning. I have not mastered it by any stretch of the imagination. And so there's a jealousy component there too. So I want to unpack that a little bit. Like, what in you was willing to be different or be willing to go through this? it's hard I, I even even if you love that stuff there's no denying it's a hard sport you're out on the water and it's freezing out and you're up at 4:40 in the morning like wh- why what how if you could just unpack it for me um because the rowers at gw like i hear it all the time I remember the gw coach was like yeah why not, Brian? why don't you come on the water with us it's it's march and it's 15 20 degree it just snowed yesterday and i'm sleeping um so what in you found that found that really attractive
1: it just i don't know it just felt good you know i think people think that it's like Like, like the way you described it is almost like I'm on some, you know, really crazy moral high ground because, like, you can't, you you can't imagine getting there, so it must be. But it has nothing to do with that. Like the people that wanted to do different things with their time, like that's what got them excited. Like for whatever reason, this just it it checked all the boxes for me. It tickled all the areas, you know. Like I was outside, which I really wanted to do, and it was really important to me. And something I wouldn't realize until later how important it was to me. So I was in a city. Or, you know, Wellesley's in a suburb, but, you know, I needed to get outside. So every day I was outside for, you know, two and a half, three hours, sometimes more, because um, we did doubles. Uh, we didn't row double, but we, we were always working out twice a day. So, you know, there was a run or some other outside time uh, carved in. So I was outside. I've always been really attracted to the water. I love the water. I love being in and around the water. So the water was a really huge factor. You're really close to the water. When you're going really fast, it feels like flying, it's the most amazing feeling I've ever had in my life, um, like being in a fast, good boat. Um, it's incredibly mentally challenging and stimulating because every single stroke you're trying to make better than the last. Um, and there's also an incredible amount of communion. And I never would have defined it this way in college because I thought in college I was, oh, I was so annoying and full of myself. and. I thought that I was just there to compete and I didn't need my teammates and, you know, but now that I look back on it, you know, so much of what I loved about it was, you know, I was with my very best friends and we're close together. I mean, you can, you can lay back and lie in the lap of your friend and, you know, pass each other water bottles, which drive your coach crazy and and tell jokes in the boat. And, you know, it's very, very intimate. And when, um, when you're in a race, it's kind of like how I imagine, like being in the matrix is like your brains are your, it's feels like a mind share. So when you're competing, even at practice, you know, when you're all focused on the same thing, it feels like you're sharing one mind. And so if one person doubts or one person believes, the entire group becomes doubting or believing. So you have this incredible influence on each other. I think it would be a fantastic scientific study for somebody to understand how energetically rowers influence each other. Um, So it's just those feelings, those feelings were worth spending time on to me. Um, And I got an amazing, I mean, just phenomenal shape. Like there was nothing that I couldn't do. Um, And it was also, I think, scratching a really big identity itch for me in that, you know, I had, I think I was coming from a, a narrative or a framework of having been an awkward, unathletic, uncoordinated kid who wasn't cool in her own mind And here I was, you know, doing really well at a sport in college that I loved and was super psyched at. And like, I, I was just, I was good at it. So I think it was also stroking my ego and giving me this, um, this piece of my identity that I've been searching for too. And that's pretty hard to, to go back from. How,
0: How much time did it take for you to
1: get good at it? Um, well, again, it depends on how you define good, but I was, um, my coach, uh, began to encourage me to pursue at least to sort of think about, um, national team stuff. I think it was around like junior year or something like that. Um, you know, and she was just like, "This this can't hurt to at least explore. And for somebody to tell me that I was like, what really like me? No. (laughs) Like, so that I think was a huge, you know, Um, area of interest to me. Like not only could I do this at the college level, but somebody thought maybe I had a shot at doing it beyond.
0: And and one of the things I I really want to try to get your thoughts on is, and I've noticed at GW, fast forward a couple of years, you're at Georgetown Coaching. So I know you have a coaching experience too, which we'll get to. So I'm hoping you can help me out. But, you know, at GW, there are kids that could grow potentially at the national level. um, But a lot of the Kids that they have are not at that level. And one of the things that's been fascinating for me to experience with rowers is I always thought that hockey was the ultimate team sport because you literally cannot stay on the ice. You have to go off for a line change and then somebody else has to come on. Even if you're the best in the world, like you're not going to stay on there for more than 60, maybe 90 seconds. And in rowing, if you're an amazing rower, you actually have to slow yourself down to sync with the boat for the boat to go faster. If you are just way faster than the rest of your boatmates and they literally can't row as fast as you, the boat's not going to go as fast as you want. And so I've actually come to the conclusion that rowing is the, I, I never worked with a sport that's as much of a team sport as rowing is. And so I would love to hear from you how you would psychologically think about yourself in a boat and knowing, I don't know if you guys did ergs and, and did your own individual times. So in rowing, they get these individual times on this machine called an erg. And that often is how they figure out who's going to be in what boat. But you might be scoring like a really fast erg time and then have to slow yourself down a little bit to sync with your teammates. So it sounds like you were elite at your college by the time you were a junior. How did you manage what you were trying to do individually with the team?
1: Um, I, I don't know that I would say elite at my, I mean, I was definitely the the best on my team on the ERG, but you know, uh, <laughs> if you ask any of my college friends, um, you know, one of the things that they love to point out is that I was really great on the ERG, but it took me a really long time to translate those skills onto the water and it was like kind of the running joke on our team, like, you know, uh, Miranda, like great on the erg, but you know, not able to figure it out on the water. Those are, they're, they're not at all the same. The erg measures your fitness and your overall power and getting in a boat is a whole different animal. Um, so, you know, yes, I had a good erg score and I got better at rowing throughout my time in college. I probably didn't really know what I was doing in an actual boat until after college. And I started sculling in a single by myself. Um, but and I wouldn't even characterize it as slowing yourself down. It's it's more about blending. So it's more about matching the um, you know getting if at least if you're in college, getting nine people so eight rowers and a coxswain on the same page, um, and getting those movements to sync up. So you can be super powerful in your individual seat. What's really important is that you're moving at the same time and in the same way as somebody else. So you can be as you you can be your whole sort of powerful, aggressive, you know, whatever self you want to call it. It's just about the fact that you literally can't move without moving in concert or in um in symphony with other people.
0: Is there anything you would do mentally to prepare for a race or to get yourself mentally where you needed to be by the time you got in that boat that you'd be in the boat?
1: Yeah. Um, my coach in college was great in that she was she was really into sports psychology. And so she gave us a lot of, she did a lot of, um, she actually had the US at the time, the USOC manual on sports psych, which uh, from my memories at the time was not that awesome, but um, she actually went through a lot of the chapters with us. And so we learned about self-talk and uh, talked about sort of pre-race rituals. And so I had, I did the same thing, you know, and I think that having a, having a pre-competition, um, you know, standard way of operating was really helpful. Same things to eat, same things to wear, same things to do. Um, but I think that the framework that helped me the most is I understood that I, if I felt nervous or my legs felt like lead or any of this sort of psychological or physiological things that I was experiencing, I understood on some level that those were a creation of, you um, you know, the impending competition. So they were, they were good. They were signs that things were going to go well because my body knew I was about to put it through hell. And so I could ground myself, you know, knowing that that was just a part of the experience. Um, But it wasn't, it didn't mean that anything was going to go wrong. Does that make sense? And that helped me stay like mentally, psychologically, even and level.
0: Yeah. We talk about, you know, getting the butterflies to fly in formation and to interpret nervousness or anxiety as excitement. Um, so that, it sounds like you did some of that. Uh, when did you start pursuing the national team? And and I know you have some experience there and face some adversity as well as a rower, just walk us through, through that process.
1: Yeah. So, um, let, let's be clear. I never actually made the national team and, and was pretty far outside of doing that. Um, because I'm, I'm sort of horribly mid-sized as a rower. I'm some, I'm five, nine. And at the time I was, you know, 155, 160 pounds. Um, and, you know, a good elite level rower looks like a really good uh, basketball player, um, you know, more like six feet to six, three, you know, 180 pounds, 190 pounds, something like that. Um, and so I was, and I hadn't been rowing very long, so I didn't have a good enough ERG score to get invited down to train where the national team was training down at Princeton University. So I knew that I was going to, if I wanted a shot at it, I was going to have to kind of go in the back door, come from the outside. So what you did at the time, um, and what's still happening now is that you would go and train at a club after college and work with a, a group of pre-lead athletes and try to improve your ERG score and or uh, work to get your small boat skills up to to being good enough to compete with these people that had been invited down to the training center. So that was my goal because, you know, I was I was shy of the time and, uh, but was was good enough that I wanted to pursue it. You know, I felt like I would regret it if I didn't sort of give it my, my full effort. And I was wholly unexcited by sort of jumping into my career right after college. So I was like, I want to give this a shot. I want to see if I can do it or not. And if I, if I can't do it, you know, great. Um, at least I'll know. Uh, and then I can sort of start my career. So I, I built my post-college life around training twice a day. And then the work was kind of squeezed into the middle. Um,
0: and, and how did that go for you?
1: Um, it was really fun and it was awesome. Um, and then, and then it wasn't. Um, so I think my second year, um, I had some pretty good results. And for me at the time that was finishing in the B final at, uh, or the second level final at uh, what's called a national selection regatta and the women's single. Um, and so that's basically trying to get the trying to get the attention of the national team coaches, um, as you're competing alongside other pre-lead athletes who are trying to do the same thing. And also you're in the mix with national team athletes. So, you know, I remember at the time, like, you know, beating somebody who had been to the Olympics before that, and just feeling like I was on top of the world. And then, um, if you fast forward, you know, a year, uh, that was in March, I think of, 2005. And so then in March of 2006, I was no longer rowing because at the time I'd been diagnosed with a heart condition. And so sort of just like that, you know, a few years out of college, this whole dream just sort of went poof. What was that like for you? At the time, it was really terrible. I mean, my world totally exploded. Um, The thing that I had built my life and my identity around, you know, was completely taken away from me. So right away, you know, no more no more being an athlete, no more rowing, no more getting your heart rate up, no more training, you know, four or five hours a day. Uh, No more being a rower. Like this is just, it was just gone in a moment. Um, And my friends say that at the time that I was just kind of like a robot. Um, I felt like I handled it pretty well. And I think, you know, because I was a good rower, I was really good at sort of being tough and ignoring signs of suffering and pain. And so I was like, okay, like this is, this is a a crappy hand that I've been dealt. Um, I'm just going to keep going. But at the time, my friends, you know, who were watching me go through this, they were like, yeah, you were, you were, you were kind of a robot. Like you, you weren't really feeling what was going on.
0: That's such an interesting, uh, I'm just reflecting on some of the clients I have where they get injured and, their sports taken away from them. And some of them, it's not forever. Like it sounds like this was a quote unquote, I'm going to use this word, but death sentence when it comes to rowing. Um, But like a lot of times what we talk about with athletes when they get hurt is okay. Control what you can control. You know, there's an element that's out of your control, get into rehab, you know, and oftentimes we don't take time even to tap into the emotional aspect of, the trauma uh, of, of an injury. And um, you think about it, like when someone gets hurt, they try to do a surgery. Usually they'll either try to get them to do some prehab or they'll do the surgery right away and then get right into, you know, rehab and, and physical therapy. And we really don't spend a lot of time on that. There was a some sort of trauma to the body here. Um, and, and for athletes, and I think what you're hitting on is like, you go from being this super active, super fit person to now they're telling you, you literally cannot get your heart rate up because it's dangerous for you. And what is underneath that for somebody? And you take away their identity as a rower, you take away their ability physiologically even to get their fitness going and what that does for the brain. It's making me sort of think a little bit about, we could probably do that better, um, I don't necessarily have all the solutions and all the answers, but I'm thinking about how, how we could do that better. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I mean, I I agree with your point. I also just don't know how, how willing I was to go into that place, you know, like you need willingness on the part of that athlete to do that, to go there. And so I think, what you're saying is we could invite them at least, you know, give them the opportunity to go there. And I bet you some people would take you up on it. And I bet you others like me would probably be like, no, no, you know, like, okay, this is what happened to me. Like, let's just move on. Like I was like, I remember saying to people, cause I kept seeing, I kept coming down to the boathouse cause I started coaching right away. And they were like, well, you know, how are you? Like, what's going on? I'm like, well, I could have, I could have crawled into bed and pulled the covers over my head and stayed home and cried about it. Or I could be here. You know, it just seemed like a no-brainer. Like, let's just keep moving. Um, so I think even if somebody had offered me the chance to do that, I don't know that I would have stopped. And I even, I went to uh, my friends. Finally, were like, you know, dude, you need to go go see a therapist. Like, this is this is messed up. Like, this is a big change for you. And I went and saw a therapist. You know, with the under the auspices of, you know, I'm going to work through my this diagnosis. And we didn't even talk about it. You know, we talked about other stuff. Um, so you know, who knows. But I like your idea.
0: Yeah, and I I like the idea of inviting them because to your point, for some it might not like, okay, for some it might be better for them to just keep going. Like, it's not going to do me any service to unpack all this right now and and tap into that. You know, the heart and the emotion side of sport is something that we're still figuring out, um, I think, as a field. And I think for a long time, honestly, before I even went to Georgetown, uh, a lot of my work was purely in the head and, and working with people on the head. Because in sport, that's really our focus is how do you get the head right so that the body can follow. And but there's this other component, which is the emotional component. And um, it's tricky because for a lot of athletes, if they go into emotions, they will become emotional. And if they become emotional, they have a lot of clutter. And so it's a complicated dance that I'm still navigating as a coach is is when do we go into the heart and when do we go into the gut and when do we work the mind? And um, for me, at least as a practitioner, I'm always thinking about how can I play around there while still letting them decide where we we go. Um, But it's tricky. I, I just had a correspondence with a woman who is in Texas and just did a TED Talk all about emotion in sport. And I just wanted to get some of her thoughts on, on some things because I think there's another wave to come, especially with fMRI machines and neuroscience. And, um, I think sports psychology is probably going to have to adapt and adjust in the coming years because you can't take out the emotion from a human being. Like that is a part of our being feelings, just like thoughts, thoughts and feelings are, are really important. So um, it's interesting. We could probably do a whole nother podcast on, on just that. Um, but you mentioned, uh, a gem in there, a nugget in there is you started to go and you started to coach. So you had rowing taking away from you. And I think now we're starting to get some insight into what comes next for you. So you just show up at the boathouse and you just start coaching.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I had an opportunity given to me, um, by somebody that was coaching, um, another sort of section of the pre-elite team that I was a part of there. So I was at Riverside Boat Club in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And there was a guy there who said, you know, he knew about my situation. And he said, um, you know, I've watched you row. I think you'd be a great coach. And I was like, dude, I've, I haven't ever coached anyone ever before in my life. I don't know what you're smoking, but like, this is not going to work. And he's like, nope, I've watched you row. And I've, I've watched how you train. And I think you'd be, I think you'd make a great coach. You at least know how to row really well. So like, let's see if you can do anything with that. And, uh, and he gave me the opportunity to work with essentially some of the guys that I've been training with, um, which was a little awkward at first, you know, to, to step into this role of coach, you know, um, then to work with athletes that I literally like a week beforehand had been training alongside as a fellow athlete. Um, and let's just be clear. It wasn't like I was like the best person in the group by any <laughs> stretch of the word. So, um, you know, but that opportunity literally redirected my entire life because it turns out that, you know, I loved coaching and it gave me an opportunity to stay involved in the sport that I wasn't ready to give up yet. What was your major in college? Uh, I was majored in English and minored in studio art.
0: So not a clear path as far as graduation. If you weren't going to row, did you, was there, was there a path you were pursuing or career wise?
1: Yeah, so I thought for a long time, mostly through high school and then through college, that I wanted to be an editor. Um, my grandmother had worked at Vogue back in the day, and I thought maybe I wanted to do magazines or books in some way. It was a way to combine my love of visual arts and, and writing and reading. Um, so I'd done internships and was prepared to do that. And at the time, I was actually a copy editor at an advertising agency, and I saw that as kind of my first foray into editing. But it turns out when you took growing out of the equation that I was wholly uninterested in what I was doing professionally.
0: And so that's where there was this opportunity to pursue something that had more interest for you which was coaching rowing.
1: Yeah, and I think the the education that I got was honestly literally perfect because I studied how to how to communicate effectively and I also trained my eye which is you know that's the essence of what I was doing as a coach, you know I was I was needing to be concise and articulate and powerful in my language. And I needed to have a really good eye to be able to see these, you know, tiny slivers of things that were happening very quickly on the water.
0: Do you think you would have become a coach without the the heart condition?
1: No, absolutely not.
0: So I know this is kind of tricky, but what do you think you think you would have stayed the path of becoming an editor?
1: You know, nobody's asked me that question. I've never thought about it. Um, I have no idea. I don't know.
0: Yeah, because you said it really changed my course. Uh, and so in, in, a, in a way, it's this watershed moment, right? Like it, the heart condition happens. You, you have this Opportunity to then coach, so you just do it because otherwise, what? Do you, what else are you gonna do? You're gonna go to work. You're gonna stay under the covers. It just gave you an out or an, an outlet um, to do something different, and then uh, you, you you become a coach.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you're like yeah, I guess. Um, and, and so so I guess talk to me about your coaching journey. And and when we say coaching, let's let's just focus on the sport coaching, and and then we're definitely gonna get into executive coaching because it's gonna be a a fun A fun thing for us to talk about as well, but talk about uh, rowing and and coaching, coaching rowers, and and what that journey was like for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it was it, it was amazing right away. I think in large part because you know this is a habit. So twice a day, you know, I showed up at a at a really cool place. I mean, Riverside is an old club. It's been around since 1869. There's incredible history in there, and there's an incredible group of people that are still there um it's a community and it was it was it was my church of sorts and so you know all my friends were there my social life was there so it enabled me to to sort of keep my life intact as i was you know transitioning and changing um in that moment so i mean it was it was amazing i got i just got super lucky because um you know the the group that i was working with ended up producing um you know, I got to run basically a, a college uh, group of athletes and so some of the best, you know, lightweight men from around the country came to Riverside to train that summer. And I got to take them to sort of the summer regatta series and they did really well. And again, like, I don't think that that was in any way me. I think that I had these really amazing athletes to work with and they made my job super easy and gave me a lot of confidence in my coaching right away. I also got the chance to uh, tag along at the world championships that year. Um, and see the lightweight men's eight so that the lightweight men's eight for the national team came out of that same training group that I was a part of. And so, you know, I got to go and see rowing at its, you know, most high level, you know, within six months of picking up a megaphone, which is just, I mean, such an incredible opportunity and gave me such a, um, a vision of, of high level rowing. And so, you know, right away, I just, I had so much fun and got so much exposure and I got so much great mentoring and training right away. And so it was just, it seemed like a no brainer to keep going. And I just, I loved it. Um, and I also got really lucky in that uh, this wonderful university right up the river, Northeastern University, um, had an opening for an assistant coach that summer. Their coaches got other jobs. And so very late in the game, like late August, they were without an assistant coach. And so um the head coach there is a really amazing guy named Joe Wilhelm and he was uh pretty desperate and i was there um you know so he hired me and and gave me a shot and uh and you know it was just kind of amazing how within 6 8 months you know i had a full-time coaching job and and could leave the, the editing career behind so to speak
0: so you're pretty humble about yourself and and being a coach and and i love your humility uh take us to those people that were rowing at an elite level. What did you notice? What did you observe? Were there qualities that they had? Was there um, commonalities that you would see from a mental standpoint in those elite rowers that were doing it at a really high level?
1: I mean, I guess when I was there, I was observing the thing that really stuck with me was more some of the technical components of the sport. Um, And what I learned over time and working with those high-level athletes is that there was so much of it that was simply persistence. It was simply like, I'm just not going to quit. Like I saw a variety of individuals on the national team, some of whom, I mean, all of whom are talented like, like, let's just talk about the baseline. Like there's, there's a baseline of, of physiological, physical, mental talent that you have to possess. Right. And then once you're kind of in this, you know, 1% or whatever you want to say, the subsection of, of humans, um, you know, within that there were clearly people that were more or less talented from each other, either physically or otherwise. And, you know, among that group, there were some people that maybe that would resemble, would have resembled me, like just wouldn't quit like just would not give up, showed up time and time again, just kept getting better, kept pushing, you know, wanted to be on the national team. And then, and then they did it. Um, so the, the persistence was really incredible to see. Um, especially I got more exposed to that seeing like the U S athletes in particular. Um, but you know, everybody at that level, like you, you, you're not untalented at that level um, in some way, shape or form.
0: Any idea how to build persistence?
1: actually i'd say i fundamentally disagree with that premise i don't know that you can build it
0: there you go so you think it's innate i don't
1: know i don't know that it's innate i think that the building the time when that stuff gets built is long gone by the time that you encounter that athlete if you're a college coach or you're an elite level coach by the time you've encountered an 18 or 20 or 24 year old uh athlete like that person's fundamental psychology and a lot of their personality, at least the, the, the stuff that you're going to get at that time, you know, that's been created by, you know, all the experiences they've had from age zero to age, you know, whenever you get them.
0: So uh, from a parenting standpoint, how do, how do you instill persistence in, in kids?
1: <laughs> um, I think you let them take risks. And I think you encourage them to uh, to try out new things and you encourage them to keep going. I mean, I think the, you know, first of all, like I'm no, I'm no expert here. Like, so I have a, I have an 18 month old son. So if there's a parenting novice, like that's me right now. Um, and my hope is, and my intention as a parent is that I let my son um, take ever increasing risks, you know, like right now it's going downstairs, you know, or, or, you know, going over physical obstacles by himself and letting him see what happens, you know, if he doesn't make it, you know, but letting those obstacles and those risks increase with seriousness and gravity over time so that he realizes what his abilities are and how he can persist.
0: You know, there's something, so I'm no expert either. So we're about to go down a slippery slope because I don't don't know how to give parenting advice because i feel like i'm just doing the best i can with what i got but we have a two-year-old and a three-year-old and one of the things we did early with my kid my my first one my my son who's three is when he would fall we would say you're okay versus are you okay um and he does this thing now where he falls and he goes i'm good <laughs> and like it cracks me up he picks himself up and and just keeps going. And I would, you know, I see other parenting where like the kid falls and they rush over to him and go, are you okay? Are you okay? And they like dust them off and like, you know, like freak out for lack of a better term. And so, I don't know. I don't know if that works. Call me in, in 20 years. We'll see. (laughs) Um, But you know, I I do, I do, I think a lot of that does get formed at a young age. And what's interesting is you told your story Uh, you talked about climbing trees and being out in, Outside in nature and being barefoot, which didn't get lost on me in Connecticut, and so like there was something in your childhood that also uh, taught you persistence. I don't know if your siblings have that, um, but but certainly uh, you what you saw in them is is a reflection of also what you saw in yourself. Regardless of they might have been more talented, physic physically, technically, there's a lot that goes into success in sport. It's it's certainly not all mental, and I actually think a lot of times mental gets um more credit than it deserves. I think mental just unlocks the unlocks the talent. But trust me, if it was all mental, I'd be the best golfer in the world. Not that I have everything figured out mentally, but I'm obsessed with this stuff. And I'm definitely not the best golfer in the world. Just look at my golf swing. It's technically very, very flawed. Anyway, um, back to you. So rowing, uh, coaching rowing. You end up going from an assistant coach to a head coach. What is it like for you as you're the head coach at a place like Georgetown? Um, you're, you're now, you've sort of quote unquote, climbed up the ladder and, and you've got a program. Uh, what's your experience like managing uh, a rowing program, which has a lot of kids and a lot of moving parts and, uh, 18 to 22 is an interesting age. Uh, what was that experience like for you?
1: It was, uh, it was really, really amazing and really, really hard. Um, there were many times where I was driving home at night, you know, Oh, it had to have been like, you know, sometimes nine or 10 at night in the early years. And I was thinking like, man, I just, I feel like a, you know, a round peg in a round hole. Like I'm so, I'm so where I'm supposed to be right now. There was so much that I really loved about it. And what I really loved about it was the student athletes themselves and working with them. And I loved that I was, you know, getting to spend so much time with them and to to shape their experience, at least from a rowing standpoint, um, you know, and ultimately it 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 became terrible in the sense that I let the narrative that I was creating about my role and my job and the place where I worked undermine my ability as as a coach, um, and that was sort of it was it was ultimately the death of of my career in that area. So it was it was both things.
0: Can you add a little more color to that?
1: Sure. Uh, which part?
0: Uh, the undermining your, your ability to coach and, and thinking about your role and, and how you how you thought about it.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm sure you've had this experience where you've been in an organization and I, I find that at organizations, there's a prevailing... You know, narrative, especially among different sort of subsets uh, of groups and employees, and so the the narrative at Georgetown, at the time that I was there, um, you know, is, you know, well, we, we've got this really great university, um, and we're working really hard, but we really just we kind of can't get anywhere. Um, you know, we're we're not really allowed to do what we need to do. We're not given sort of the the control and the autonomy to make the changes we want to make, and so you know, the, the narrative among other people in the athletic department, and I think this is probably, I, I can't say for sure, but somewhat university-wide is, you know, there was this frustration. Um, uh, and, and let me just be totally clear. I had amazing bosses. Uh, Lee Reed, who's still the AD there, is an, um, like just a top-notch guy. Like he was an amazing mentor to have, and he was doing just an incredible job in the athletic department. So this is not at all a, an indictment. Of, of him or his abilities at all. Um, I was I was sort of falling under the spell of that collective narrative and that collective mindset and thinking that you know we just weren't going to be able to get it done. And I was working really hard and I wasn't really being seen and and you know. But a lot of it was just it, it was totally an invention of my own thinking and my own mind. You know, like I was I was feeling like I was working really hard and my efforts weren't being recognized or appreciated. And you know that was a real drain of energy on me, which ultimately led to some pretty serious burnout.
0: So it ended up being like a lack of gratitude, a lack of uh, fulfillment or a lack of joy. What, what would you, how would you pin it that that led to the burnout? Like if you were to locate, okay, when did this turn? In, you, when did it turn into a, a round peg in a square hole as opposed to a,
1: a round peg in a round hole? Um, I think I realized this is so, this is so sad that it happened this way. But so um, I met my husband, Jamie at Georgetown. He was a swim coach and I was the rowing coach and we got married. And right around the time that we got married, actually right, like I think it was two days before we got married, he got a, a job or an interview opportunity from from Brown to be the swimming coach there. And so we actually went straight from our honeymoon to Providence, Rhode Island, and he interviewed for the job, which he didn't get. And when he didn't get it, I cried and I, I was more disappointed than he was. And it made me realize that I wanted out of my role. And I didn't even know that I wanted out until somebody, somebody gave me the opportunity to consider getting out of it. Um, and if I, you know, when I look back now, you know, I was, I was really overwhelmed. I was exhausted. I was pouring too much time and too much energy into my role. And I had really terrible boundaries about my work and I wasn't doing anything at all to restore or to re-energize myself or to take care of myself in any kind of significant way so that I could, you know, show up for practice and be, you know, a more whole energized, um, you know, essentially well enough person to be able to, um, you know, give my student athletes the best version of myself. And I don't know that they would characterize it that way. I think that I did a pretty good job keeping it under the surface, but, I was really tired. I was just exhausted of this, this grind, you know, this work, we're, we're like, at this point, I'm, I think, you know, 33, 34. And I've been main, essentially maintaining this kind of schedule since I was 18 in college, you know, so this, you know, we're coming up on 15 years of getting up at four or five in the morning and going until anywhere from seven to nine at night, you know, six days a week, all throughout the year, like, it's a lot.
0: When did executive coaching come into your life?
1: Uh so I went and saw a therapist at Georgetown as part of a faculty and staff assistance program because I knew on some level I was, you know, I needed some help. And um and the therapist was this amazing guy. Um and he was like, Have you considered executive coaching? And I was like, I don't know what that is. What what's that? And he's like, Well, I think I think it's all the things that you really like about coaching and none of the things that you don't like. Um he didn't put it that way, but it, he basically explained to me that Georgetown had a great executive coaching program and he could hook me up with some people. um, And I started talking to other executive coaches and it just, it sounded like um, it sounded like the answer to my un my, the, the prayers that I wasn't aware of at the time in my heart.
0: What in you, this is the second time you you did see a therapist that you've shared with me. What, in you allows you to go get help in, in both those cases. I know the first time you said, well, my friends were like, you have to go see someone and you're like, okay, fine, I'll go. And then you didn't really talk about maybe what was really going on. Uh, but then this time you go again, Uh, the reason I'm asking this question is is pretty loaded. It's, I'm around a lot of sport coaches and very few of them, not very few, many times they are not willing to get help. Um, and so I'm curious, like in that space that you were in where there was like ego involved and there was, uh, you had that sport coaching mindset of grinding, what allowed you to open yourself up to, to get help?
1: Well, the first time it was, it it was just like being forced to essentially, you know? Um, and then I think I had the experience of realizing, wow, like, cause up until, so prior to my first experience in therapy, I thought therapy was for like really mentally ill people, like or people who had experienced significant trauma or were struggling in their life in some really big ways. And I'm like, I'm a middle-class, like white girl from Connecticut. Like, you know, yes, my life has been challenging, but like, I haven't had any major trauma. Like I don't belong in therapy. Like there's nothing wrong with me. And then I realized that actually, you know, therapy is really a space to explore whatever's going on in your life. You don't have to have, um, you know, a mental illness or have experienced major trauma to to find talking with another person or expressing yourself emotionally and working through stuff useful or helpful. I saw that therapy, you know, that everybody could benefit from therapy on some level. Everybody could benefit from that time out of, uh, out of your normal life. So I think that my first experience in it changed my mindset. So the second time I could say, Hey, I, I need to go do something with these feelings. Um, I need some help. Uh, and it, you know, I I wouldn't say I'm great at asking for help, but I could at least do that.
0: And transitioning into the executive coaching space, what have you found in that space that makes you feel alive?
1: I mean, it's, I just get more of what makes me really excited. Like I love seeing people Unlock their potential, for lack of a better word. I love seeing people do what I feel like they were put on the earth to do. I love seeing them figure out and get, you know, whatever you want to call it, strong or confident or clear or purposeful about what they're doing in their lives. I mean, it is, it's just awesome to watch. And that's what I loved about being a sport coach. You know, I loved watching these young men and women, but you know, I've mostly worked with women in my collegiate career, obviously, and like watching them figure out how strong and awesome they are, like what is better than that? Like, it's just so cool. Um, like seeing what they could do and how they could transform, that they have this power and autonomy to do that to themselves and their bodies is just it's awesome. And so I feel like in executive coaching I just get I get more of that experience. Um you know, more of that time to be with people, you know helping them be who they want to be um, I don't know to me, like if you had asked me, you know what do you want to do with the rest of your life? If you didn't have to get paid or you know make it a, make it a career i would I would have said like you know I really like having real conversations with people like I hate small talk, I don't like cocktail parties and talking about the weather and like telling you what I do or whatever. I really like getting down to the nitty gritty of like, what is going on for you as a fellow human? Like, what are you in the middle of right now? What what are you struggling with? Like, what could be better? And that's what I get to do. It's so cool.
0: You know, it's amazing. So we're videoing this, but you guys that are listening are only going to see the audio. So Miranda, she started talking. Hopefully you could tell her tone completely just changed. Um, and it almost was like she got out of her story and, and just, brought us to the present Miranda, which was so awesome. And then she leaned into the camera. like There was a time where she was pretty close to the computer. It was completely leaning in. And there was such a passion and an energy that you just gave off that made me smile and just made me really become inspired in a lot of ways. And so it was really cool to see it, to hear it, to notice it. And hopefully it came across in the audio. It was in my headphones coming across, um, but I also am using my eyes. So um, hopefully it came across because it really sounds like you found, I'm reading this book about ikagi, which is a Japanese phrase for like when your passion meets your vocation and it's when everything syncs together. It sounds like this is your ikagi. Speaking of Japanese stuff, um, I know you're also a yogi and if you had asked me how many rowers or I call them like pain sports. So swimmers, rowers, wrestlers, American football, um, runners, uh, there's a certain element of pain that they have to deal with and they have to have the persistence to use your word earlier to keep on going, even when it's painful. Um, and it's physically painful and somewhat mentally taxing and painful as well. Um, those athletes in my mind are they go more towards marathon running at least in my experience like they are the ones who will be running the new york marathon or the boston marathon and you know there is a mindset that goes with marathon runners that is about persistence and and continuing to go yoga to me is different than marathon running uh yoga is is more about being whereas i think marathon running is more about becoming and um not to say that yoga is easy, and as somebody who's you know in the you know bottom one percent of flexibility, I can I can attest to struggling <laughs> at yoga and, and having pain while I'm doing yoga. But the purpose of yoga is a lot about being, and um, there's a meditative component that also exists in yoga. So I'm curious how this runner who built her life off of persistence and waking up at five am and working till seven pm as it sounds like falling in love with yoga. So if you could unpack that for me, I I, I just had it as something to ask. I only keep a couple of specific questions, but when I was doing research on you, I was really curious about your interest in yoga.
1: Yeah. Well, yoga, yoga found me because there wasn't much else that I could do. Right. You know, so I couldn't, I couldn't go for a run. I couldn't go for a 22 kilometer row anymore. Um, but I wanted something really challenging and yoga felt like that challenge. You know, it was physically very challenging and it didn't get my heart rate up. So it kind of met the criteria of something that I could do. Um, And I will say that yoga is a huge part of my transformation as a human. And the yoga teacher um, training program that I went through was, I would say the the gateway drug for the Georgetown coaching program (laughs) it was kind of like, it helped me, you know, start to imagine my way there. Um, but yoga has been a, yoga has been the gift that the universe gave me to help me slow down and to help me change my approach and my mindset. Cause I have long been a, a doer and, um, and an achiever and a perfectionist like rowing gave me so much. And it also ingrained in me some really dangerous and Danger sounds like a strong word, but some, some deep habits that are in some ways fundamentally flawed, you know, like every strength can be a weakness. And so, you know, when you, when you can push yourself to these great lengths in terms of pain, you know, that's, that's great up until the point that it's not. Um, and yoga helped me sort of step back from all of that and start to be, um, a very different kind of person. It was a really nice, um, sort of preparation for what I would ultimately do in terms of executive coaching. And I still obviously practice it and draw from it.
0: What else do you do to make sure that mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically you're, you're strong?
1: Um, I'm sort of terrible at it right now, but um, meditation or just, you know, any kind of being quiet uh, for me, I find has a really profound impact. Um, it is the single the most important thing that I can do that I am doing that I struggle to do for my coaching. Um, it makes me a better coach. It makes me a better human. Um, and I'm finding it really difficult to do, um, with an 18 month old right now, it was really, really easy to do, you know, every morning when I woke up, uh, before I had a kid and now I'm, uh, you know, trying to figure out the best way to do it.
0: Awesome. So what I'd like to do is I'd like for you to pretend like you're, you're back on the boat and uh, in the shell and you've got your megaphone or you guys use like a boat next to the shell or whatever, um, but you've got your megaphone and you can use that megaphone to broadcast whatever you want uh, on this podcast. So uh, let us know where we can find you uh, online, uh, your website, uh, anywhere on social media and then anything else that you think deserves a megaphone that people should know more about that maybe they're unaware of.
1: That's a, that's a big ask. Um, well, you can email me. Uh, it's Miranda at Miranda holder.com. Uh, you can check out my website, uh, Miranda holder.com. Um, I don't have social media. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time online. Um I guess I'm you know a lot of people would look at the <laughs> would look at the way that I'm running my business and say I'm not promoting myself enough um but I guess I'm just I don't know like to to my pre to my previous point I'm just sort of over um I'm over the hustling and the striving and the pushing I'm into a space where I'm allowing more so if anything that I've said is is interesting or you have questions or want to learn more I'd love to hear from you um but other than that that's kind of all I got
0: yeah, your social media is under all the books with the TV, probably uh, <laughs> hidden hidden away somewhere. Um, so I am on Twitter at Brian Levinson. I'm a Twitter fiend. I love Twitter. Uh, not that I have everything figured out either. I think I think one of the big challenges I'm I'm wrestling with right now is where is where is the integration of being and becoming, and uh, like still valuing the I'm a doer. Like you said, you're. Like I'm a doer. Uh, yesterday I had lunch with someone and they looked at me and they're like, you're a doer. I'm like, yep, I'm a doer. Um, so like wanting to achieve, wanting to become, while also being able to have space to to be. And I think for most people, like um, finding how to do that is, is a massive challenge. And, you know, is the becoming coming from the being or does the being come from the becoming? And, um, I think those are, those are big questions. That's once again, we could, we could have another podcast for anyway, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers, and you can go to our website intentionalperformers.com Miranda. This was a blast. It was everything I hoped it to be. And I know we've got more phone calls in the future to discuss, all about the world of uh, executive coaching and, and potentially uh, sport as well and the intersection of those two or not. And uh, looking forward to getting to know you and um, enjoy the snow up there. Uh, Miranda showed me outside her window. They have, I don't know how many, is there a couple feet on, on, on the ground? A couple of feet of snow um, up, up where she's at. So thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate it. And I uh, look forward to chatting again
1: soon. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I just get more of what makes me really excited. Like, I love seeing people unlock their potential, for lack of a better word. I love seeing people do what I feel like they were put on the earth to do. I love seeing them figure out... And get you know, whatever you want to call it, strong or confident or clear or purposeful about what they're doing in their lives. I mean, it is it's just awesome to watch. And that's what I loved about being a sport coach. You know, I loved watching these young men and women, but you know, I've mostly worked with women in my collegiate career, obviously, and like watching them figure out how strong and awesome they are. Like what is better than that?